Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Matt Carbray, a wealth manager located in Connecticut. Mark works with entrepreneurs that are in the process of planning a future exit, and he helps them assemble a team of advisors and plans for their eventual exit from their business. He works exclusively with business owners versus other affluent individuals and executives and their families. I think you're going to enjoy this episode because, as a wealth manager, he has a little bit different orientation and perspective than other intermediaries and advisors. Mark begins his stories that he shares with us today about a client that had a commercial sign company that had two main types of customers. One customer segment was in the trade show, convention, and event marketing business. The other was for companies that needed exterior signs for their buildings and locations. You can imagine how impactful COVID was to these verticals and the business that was able to be generated in the business. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. Let me go back and give a little background first. His client had started his business out of the proverbial garage. He had a co-founder who had a 44% equity in the business and an angel investor who was a silent partner that provided the capital for the startup of the business. His client had 51% ownership in the business. Now, you might think that 51% has control over the business, but I want you to listen to why, even though this 51% had stockholder control, over his other two partners who had only 49%, why he didn't have control and have the final say on when and how the business was to be sold. The next story that Mark shares with us is about a pharmaceutical company that had 50-50 partners. One partner was mid-career and the other was at the tail end of his career. I want you to listen how the differences in life stages made a huge difference when it came time to exit their business. Next, Mark shares how a business established way back in 1877 was sold when there was no viable successor because none of the four kids of the current generation was involved in the business, and why even during the midst of COVID, when there was a ton of economic uncertainty, that the buyer was more than willing to aggressively move forward with the purchase in May of 2020 at the peak of the COVID shutdown. And all of this with no contingencies, an all-cash offer, and with a very short escrow. The whys in this scenario are instructive, and I want you to listen for them, because there's a lot to learn. Finally, Mark talks about how an entrepreneur took care of his four kids when only one could run the business, and yet the other three also worked in the business. And he was able to treat all of them very equitably and fairly. You'll learn how he was also able to provide for his wife, who had no business sense and no ability to control her spending or control a budget, and yet she owned 100% of the business. And when he unexpectedly passed away, how all of this worked out, and it worked out according to plan. I want you to listen to how that all came about. 
In this episode, you'll gain an appreciation for how a wealth manager can be one of the key advisors for entrepreneurs who will generate a substantial payday when they sell their business and how they keep most of their cash from the sale versus giving it all away in taxes and bad investments. Enjoy. This is Marvin L. Storm with Matt Carberry today. We're chatting with Matt a little bit about business exits that he's been involved in. So Matt is a little bit different than the traditional intermediaries that we've had on our podcast here today. He's a wealth manager. So Matt, why don't you just take a few minutes and talk about your business and a little bit about where you're located and kind of what you do. Yeah, thanks, Marvin. So Matt Carbray, the name of my firm is Ridgeline Financial Partners. We are in Avon, Connecticut, centrally located two towns west of our capital city of Hartford. And I got into the business in 2002, uh, out of school with a financial planning degree. And I always kind of had a desire to work with business owners. And a lot of that was because both sides of my family, uh, my mother and my father's side, we're both involved in all different types of businesses. All right. With that introduction, why don't we discuss some of those deal stories and transactions? Why don't we start out with some of those that had some challenges to them? Yeah. Well, there's one that particularly comes to mind, and it was a client that I was introduced to in 2018. And at the time, it was a partnership. You had three separate partners. You had a 51% partner who felt pretty strongly that he had the majority interest in the company. And the other two partners had made up the remaining 49%. Well, when I got introduced to them, the point where they were starting to engage with uh, potential strategic buyers, and they even had a valuation done that gave them an idea of what the business interest would be worth. 51% was the majority. And then the other 49% was made up of the other two, 44 and 5%. There rhyme and a reason as to why he had a 5% interest. Now, like a lot of small businesses, they sometimes start with a great idea and no money. Well, this was exactly that type of a business. It was, hey, we think that this is an underserved industry. We have experience in it, but we don't have any money. So they found someone that was willing to give them money uh, for not having to do a whole heck of a lot. So that's kind of how the partnership evolved. And those are really the parties to the partnership. I will say that second minority owner that has that 44% stake was about 12 to 15 years younger than the majority owner. So the older owner and the majority owner was initiating all the conversation. And as I had been formally introduced to them by a consultant that was trying to help them position for a sale, I started to ask certain questions such as, well, what is someone buying here? You're in the type of a business that is developing high-level signage. And it's not to say that other businesses couldn't... The barriers to entry were not that significant. And I got to the root of well, you know, we, we do things the right way. We've got good relationships. We're very well known. And we also have a very key employee who we would consider our chief technology officer that drives this ship. Um, so that ultimately is what a business was looking to buy is to buy 
this existing business that had a good reputation, but also had very sharp people and one person who was at the lead of the controls that ideally they would be able to retain um, in a business transaction. Okay. So obviously, as you're sharing the transaction with us here, something happened along the way that caused a problem. Well, sure. So we wanted to get a better idea of what does their operating agreement say? Why don't you talk a little bit about an operating agreement and really what that is and why it's important? Well, an operating agreement is probably one of the most important documents. Um, A buy-sell plan you often would find as a document that would be part and parcel with an operating agreement when you have multiple owners or a partnership. But it's going to cover stability, dissolution, uh, and divorce. And what happens to the business in those type of settings? But the operating agreement is also going to go a step further. And it's going to talk about, you know, if a business were to be sold, if someone's interest were to be bought out, um, voting and, and, the authority that's given to various different people. Well, when these guys set this up, originally this operating agreement, which goes back to the inception of the business, it was done by a general practitioner attorney. And what I have not seen that often is language that says that the decision-making has to be done in unison. It has to be fully agreed upon So even though someone may have a majority interest, when it comes to decisions regarding the sale of the business, everyone has to be in agreement on the terms. So if you conceptually look at this, we have a 51% owner, but he still cannot make a decision, even though he has majority ownership, to sell the business because the operating agreement specifically states that it has to be all for one or nothing. Yeah. So that business owner who was at the stage in his career where he was looking to get out, um, the problem that he had was a minority partner, the larger of the two, who was at a much different stage in his career that didn't want to get out. He wasn't working that hard. He was working remotely. He was earning a very nice salary and a nice uh, corporate distribution. And then you had a 5% owner who wasn't lifting a finger when it comes to the business who said, well, I just like the fact that the business continues to do well. I get a nice distribution. I've still got my equity and I'm going to hold out because I think you guys can probably get more. Well, so I guess they have an unsolicited or they went to market or how did they get to the point where this became a huge issue? They were working with an M&A firm, and that M&A firm had brought a couple of prospective buyers to them. As these prospective buyers started to better understand the current makeup of the ownership, they didn't need an operating agreement to arrive at the conclusion that these three guys all want different things. And you know, we're not going to sit here and wait until these guys can get their act together and get on the same page. We're just going to move on. And the buyers quickly left the uh, negotiating table and there was a lot of unrest. And this goes back to 2018. And at the present moment, the business still does exist. Um, But unfortunately, this is a business that uh, was very much susceptible to COVID, given that 
a lot of the signage that they did was for retail, uh, for trade shows, real specialized, high level type stuff. And, and not a lot of that is going on right now. So not only were they not able to consummate a deal when it would have been an ideal time to do so, and none of us knew that COVID was coming, but I say, regardless of that, your, your business always needs to plan for a COVID type event, whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's something that's out of our control or not doing as much as we can um, to, to prepare ourselves to get through something like that. But they lost the most important piece to the puzzle, which was that key employee that I alluded to that there was nothing keeping him there. And a competitor came along and it very well could have even been that, that, that buyer. I don't know where he, he landed, but they lost their most key person. So if you're looking at it today, has that business been sold or have they resolved the issue or is it kind of a, a standoff? Uh, they have not resolved the issue. They are trying to, if they haven't already, uh, tried to buy out that minority owner who really serves the least value. Um, again, he's kind of got all the cards, though. He's got ownership. I mean, he doesn't have to sell. Well, he's got a, a forever cash flow stream with probably ever-increasing equity. Why would he be motivated to sell? Well, he's got he's got a great annuity that he put very little money into that's paying him far more than any market-level annuity could. So he's got no motivation. Although, if the business continues to kind of deteriorate, yeah, I guess he's losing whatever the 5% is of the underlying business. But with how much he's received relative to what he's put in, he almost doesn't care at this point. Um, so the last that I left it with them was that that is what they were working on. They were working on trying to get him out of there, uh, which they thought would allow them to be in a better position where the two of them would be more likely to arrive at a number that would be sufficient enough or significant enough for each of them. So that's where they're at. So just to summarize the transaction here, we have uh, an operating agreement, which says that all three of the unequal partners must agree before they can have a transaction and exit the business. And during that time, when they had a an offer on the table, it was pre-COVID. It was probably a fairly good offer since they had an M&A firm involved. And along comes COVID, totally unexpected. They're in a business that's highly influenced by the economy. They're in the trade show business, and there aren't a lot of trade shows going on right now. And not a lot of new business is opening up retail locations in the middle of COVID. So the external sign business is a downward trend for the time being. And so a lot of the value of the business kind of evaporated with COVID. And they're looking at a situation where no one is willing to move. So they're kind of in a stalemate until something breaks away. And because the business can't be sold until they're all in agreement. So, you know, they may never get the business sold. Yeah, it, that's really the sad reality in all of this is that that business may never sell. And the older business owner, the majority owner, if you want to call him that because doesn't have majority characteristics, is going to have to work a heck of a lot longer to try and get that business back somewhere remotely close to where it was 
on a valuation basis, that smaller minority owner out of there. But then again, they have a problem, which a lot of business owners do, where they lost one of the most important value drivers, and that's human capital. Their key guy just took off, and he was responsible for a significant portion of the revenue. Tons. Yeah, he was responsible for just the logistics. He was a revenue driver, um, an incredible mind, and um, there was nothing keeping him there. There was no promises or offering of ownership, and that's not a necessity to keep people. But there was nothing financially that was keeping him back. And you have to ask yourself the question as a business owner, how much is this guy responsible for? You know, let's just say he's responsible for a million of revenue. Well, you got to think really long and hard about how much money you're willing to spend or to set aside of that a million dollars to protect that employee. Is it 10%? Is it 5%? It's got to be something or it should be something And there's a lot of ways that you can design plans to tie employees to the business and make the risk of forfeiture or risk of loss of funds that much imposing where an employee is going to think long and hard about leaving. I guess the real key takeaway here, if you had to sum it up in a sentence or two, what would it be, Matt? Well, first and foremost is if you are in any sort of a partnership, do you understand your operating agreement? You would agree with me, Marvin. Just to address that point, I would imagine that if you asked 10 people, eight out of the 10 of them may not even know if they have an operating agreement, and those that do may not know what's in it. Yeah, and the numbers could even be higher. A lot of them don't understand if this happens, then what happens? If your partner passes away, um, who's your new partner? Is it the spouse? Is it the children? Is it um, subject to the buy-sell that then kicks in? So I, I think that if you are in any sort of a partnership, you better understand what that operating agreement states. And very close second is, do you have a buy-sell plan? And what are the provisions in there? And is it funded or is it unfunded? All right. Those are good points. So. With that in mind, and now that we have a business that may or may not ever get sold, let's move on to one that had its problems, but maybe did get sold. All right. So I'll paint the picture for you. We have a business that is in, let's call it pharmaceutical uh, slash medical compounding. And you have two business owners. You have a partnership. You have a 50-50 partnership. You've got business owner A, who is nearing retirement age. Uh, early to mid-60s, business owner B, who's about 10 to 12 years behind, both business owner A and B, I've worked with since 2003. Uh, The business was sold in 2015. Over the course of 12 years of very aggressive retirement plan savings, Uh, this is a business that had a 401k, a profit-sharing plan, and a defined benefit plan uh, referred to as a cash balance plan that the business owners had accumulated outside of their business. Just address a defined benefit plan versus what some people would know is the only thing they're familiar with is 401k. Sure. So uh, this company had uh, somewhere between 25 and 30 employees, and they were doing eh, probably about 8 to $10 million a year in revenue at the time. Um, they had a 401k profit sharing plan 
And within that 401k profit sharing plan, at the time, and it's been adjusted for inflation, but to give you an idea, the business owners were putting away anywhere between fifty dollars and $60,000 a year into that 401k profit sharing each. For them to do that, they did have to give money to their employees. But the analogy that I often give to my business owner clients, if the numbers work out, is would you rather give the money to your employees or give it to the federal government and the state government? And more often than not, a business owner is going to say, well, I'd rather give it to my people. This was exactly that scenario. Well, the business owners were making a heck of a lot more money than they needed. So what we then in turn did is we layered another retirement plan on top of their 401k profit sharing plan called a cash balance, which is a form of a defined benefit retirement plan. Now, the one thing that you have to remember is that if you have this cash balance plan and you have it and you add it above and beyond your 401k profit sharing plan, that it is going to require you and and make you commit to a certain level of a contribution year in and year out. So you have to have the right business that has steady cash flow, uh, a business that doesn't have mass fluctuations. This is really a commitment. So we put that plan in place on top and the business owners were getting about 100 and call it 75,000 of 220,000 in overall contributions. So they were giving up 45,000 to get 175, but they were also saving tax on 225,000. So the numbers most certainly worked out to their benefit. Good to have a good advisor on your team so you can figure those things out, huh? Well, a good advisor, a good CPA, and a good actuary. Because when you're talking about bringing a defined benefit plan in the equation, it requires you to have someone who's very sophisticated in the interplay between a DC plan, which is a 401k profit sharing plan, and a DV plan, which is either a traditional defined benefit or a cash balance plan, is saying, well, you can absolutely do this and you can do that without understanding the provisions. So they have a business here that is generating significant cash flow that they're able to fund these type of strategies really to accumulate value outside of the actual core of the business value. Yeah. I mean, it was a business that was generating, uh, in terms of margins, prior to tax is somewhere around $2 million. So each of the business owners were deriving about a million dollars on their K-1 every year. And if I could divert $250,000 per person, well, let's call it a little bit lesser than that. Let's call it uh, uh, somewhere between $125,000 and $175,000 per person per year. The tax savings alone on that at 39.6 federal and let's say 7% state, it, it, it's really a, a, a much lesser out of pocket because of the tax benefits. And that's the reason that both these business owners over 12 years were able to accumulate $3 million each in retirement plan savings outside of the business. All right. So we have a business that's fairly well run, generating a lot of cash. Since this is a challenging story that had its problems, where did the problems creep up? Yeah. So the problems actually occurred on the back end. And these were two very sophisticated 
business owners, good legal counsel, and they sold their business to an aggregator, to a very similar business that had 40 locations. And it, it made all the sense in the world for them. The deal sounded great, 75% upfront, cash in pocket, 25% to be paid in arrears, some of that in the form of a monthly um, income from a promissory note. And the balance paid five years, which would have been this November of 2020. Okay. So just to summarize the transaction, so we have a clear conceptual structure in our head here. We have a business sold, what would it sell for? Eight, ten million dollars based on a two million dollar EBITDA? Yeah, I want to say it was um eight million, it was eight to nine nine million, I think I would say, somewhere around there. So nine million EBITDA, twenty-five percent of that in a promissory note paid over five years at you know four, five, six percent interest rate, I imagine. Yes, five percent was the rate. All right. So seventy-five percent of the money paid in cash in their pocket. They're going to get a payout on a predictable amortized promissory note. Sounds good. Business is generating a lot of cash. Well run. You said they're sophisticated, great legal counsel. What could go wrong? Well, here's what went wrong. So the agreement, in essence, allowed the purchasers of the business this ability to almost have an unlimited due diligence process, meaning that if they determined any irregularities in the terms that they agreed to, or if they found that revenues were, uh, I don't want to say mislabeled, but I'll, I'll get to that and you'll understand what I'm talking about in a second, that they reserved the right to kind of reopen the agreement. Okay, so just for clarification, that's kind of an unusual provision because normally you go through a due diligence period of two, three, four months or whatever it takes to have all the boxes checked and everyone sign off that uh, they agree now on the parameters of the transaction and it goes to closing and that's the end of the due diligence unless there's fraud or something involved. But this had an open-ended due diligence window? Well, I don't want to say it was open-ended. I think much like other agreements, if there is even the slightest speculation that there's misrepresentation or fraud that I mean, that agreement very well could be opened, it could be litigated or contested. And that's exactly what happened here as these new business owners took over the business. Now, you got to keep in mind, I guess, that they had purchased, you said, 40 other yes. companies that were in the same vertical. And so they're fairly familiar with getting in and rolling up their sleeves and running these businesses. Yeah, these guys knew exactly what they were doing. And again, I, I want to say that I don't believe that there was any errors in omission. This was just one of those instances where even the best designed uh, closing agreements could not have protected against this. So what ensued is the new business owners, as they started to look at the numbers, they started to realize that the amount of money that we're getting from a line of business that is governmental reimbursed. So just for clarification here, these are 
a pharmaceutical company, you said, that is getting a lot of their revenue through insurance companies or government reimbursements, Medicare, Medi-Cal, something like that. And you do a lot of coding, I guess, medical coding to determine really what the the procedure or drug that's being used, and that coding can determine the reimbursement rate, right? That's exactly the case. So, and there's a lot of room for interpretation. I mean, I'm sure that many of your listeners have received uh, a bill that says this is not a bill, and you go, well, why are you sending it to me if it's not a bill? Well, it's the back and forth between the providers and the insurers to determine what exact service was rendered and what the corresponding reimbursement is for it. And there's a lot of waste in that. Well, in this particular case, there's a lot of room for interpretation in terms of how certain things get coded. And these individuals were coding things in a particular way. And the prior ownership was coding things in a different way, in a more profitable way. Now, the business owners that purchased the business contested that you guys legally shouldn't be coding things in that particular light. You should be coding them this way. And I assume that the way they should have been coding it, according to the new buyers, was different that reduced the income. Well, yeah, substantially. So when you started to, to peel back a couple layers here and you looked at the volume and you looked at the comparative amount of revenue, the amount that we were looking at was about $500,000 per year in revenue that is in essence gone because of how one person felt as though a certain medication should be coded uh, relative to how they felt that it should be. Now, the last thing that either of these parties wanted to do was to open up any sort of a can of worms. You know, it's just, it's just like the IRS, right? I mean, people interpret things different ways. And they just kind of wait uh, for any sort of a contest to have to try and prove why they felt that the stance they took was right. And it's kind of the same in this world. So no one necessarily wanted to tip the apple cart here. But the prior business owners did have to see the point that these people brought up and the point that they made and to say, well, okay, we, we, I guess we can see why you interpret it one way and why we interpret it another and why your way may actually be the better way and the more legitimate way of doing things. So we have a situation now where they've reopened, basically reopened negotiations on what that contract would be. And I guess this is really impactful because you take a look at the $500,000 a year. And if you get a multiple of four, let's say, I don't know what the multiple was on EBITDA, but you get three, four, five, whatever that multiple is. And so you may be looking at a half or $2 million swing in valuation on a $9 million transaction. And you have a 25% promissory note out there that is yet to be paid. And so you have a situation here on the collectability of that promissory note. Yeah, that's exactly the case. So just to kind of come full circle, this got resolved. Um, you know, it, it took some time, but the amount in question that they kind of arrived at and said, you know, the value over an extended amount of 
years, let's call it 2 million, the business owners in essence said, you know, if we can get out of this by each conceding 500,000, which was a million dollars in total of the, the two to two and a half million that was due as part of the installment note, as, as painful as that is, thankfully, we both have done a lot over the last 10, 15 years to put money aside. And, and we looked at the impact of each of them not receiving that 500,000. And it was going to have no effect on the sustainability of their retirement. Um, so that was the good news in all this. And we can't say that that is the majority of circumstances where take it being a, a self-employed business owner who sells his business for $4 million, And then you think about what that is after all the taxes have been paid. And you know, you're probably looking at losing 1.2. So you got 2.8. And then someone claws back a million dollars from that, you're down to 1.8. It very well may not be enough. So in this situation, for $500,000 each, they could walk away. And I guess they had the ability to sort of walk away because they had accumulated a lot of assets outside of the core value of their business that, yeah, when you take a look at the big picture, yeah, it's $500,000, but not a huge deal since we have millions of dollars accumulated that are going to fund our retirement post exit of the business. And so they just move on. Yeah. I mean, they, they each had a net worth that was north of about $8 million. So they were going to be fine. It was painful, but they also realized that if this were to get out into the public domain or the subject of litigation, that the numbers are only going to get bigger. One of the conditions, probably the most important part of this, Marvin, was they had the current ownership sign off on the inability to ever open back up the books. This is it. Everybody moves on. And um, I thought that that was probably the most important provision as part of it. So the big takeaway here, I guess, Matt, as you've outlined and explained the story to us here is really... If you have a good business or any business that is an ongoing concern, you really need to take a look at the type of accumulation you have outside of your core business and over time build up that those assets that are on your personal balance sheet and not on the company balance sheet. And so when you do exit your business and the unanticipated happens, you aren't devastated because some or all of that value you've created in the business can't be captured at the time of exit. So in this particular case, the gentlemen were able to walk away without a huge devastating impact on their post-exit life. Yeah. I mean, that was the silver lining in all of this is that the two business owners were able to, I guess, rest a little bit more easy in knowing that, okay, the deal is done. They can't reopen the agreement. Um, we had to give up a little bit, but you know, we, we still got everything it is that we needed out of the deal. And so that was, I guess, the silver lining again. All right. So we're going to take a break here. We'll be back in a few minutes. Having Matt with us here today really highlights the pitfalls of an entrepreneur not really being prepared to exit his business. In the next part of the podcast, I want you to listen closely to some of the things that Matt talks about as his clients, who are entrepreneurs, position their companies for a successful exit and why this is so important. In order to help entrepreneurs get their business positioned to sell, 
I have been compiling the good, the bad, and the ugly, sometimes really ugly stories that are shared here on the podcast and together with the decades of my experience in growing and exiting businesses into a book I'm going to call Pack Your Parachute, The Strategies for a Successful and Profitable Business Exit. I would like to give you a pre-publication offer here to have you get a copy of this book simply by going to www.businessexitstories.com forward slash book. If you register, I will get you a discount code for 90% off. Again, that is www.businessexitstories.com forward slash book. All right, so we're back here with Matt. Matt, now that you've shared a couple of those transactions with us on these sales and exits that had their issues, why don't we jump over and chat about some of those transactions that worked out really well for all parties and maybe especially the business owners that exited their business? Yeah, sure. I'll speak to one, Marvin, that I think is very timely. It's a business that in this COVID-based environment that we're in, We've seen a lot of industries just get upended, uh, retail, hospitality, restaurants, um, not being able to operate either by way of government mandate or just out of uh, safety precautions or just lack of consumer demand. But a business that is in the energy delivery uh, sector, uh, consumer business, very longstanding business, very well recognized in the community one of the oldest operated businesses, not by the same operator or the same family, but a business that's been existed for quite some time uh, that started the process of trying to uh, exit or the business owner started the process, um, let's call it about a year ago. And um, negotiations started to get a lot more formal in the early part of the year. And this just kind of goes to speak to how successful of a business, how well it's capitalized, is that the business transaction closed in the, I believe, at the first or the second week of May, given everything that's going on. So the business was owned solely by a uh, husband and wife. Uh, the husband was the sole owner. There were no children in the business, although they had four. And uh, it was a situation where a larger buyer, who had acquired many businesses throughout the country uh, that were similar in size and scale, saw this as a great way to scale uh, their other businesses. And they have a history of these type of transactions. And they came in and they offered the business owner a substantial amount of money, a um, multi-generational amount of money. And um, the, the business just was in a perfect position because it was very minimally affected by COVID. And if anything, with uh, you know, more and more people staying home and using different types of energy, their numbers, if anything, were probably as good as they've ever been. And so as that transaction rolled out, when it came time to close in, you said, May, that was really the period of a lot of uncertainty of really what was going to happen as everything was starting to shut down and had shut down. And that didn't seem for the buyer to raise any red flags? No. I mean, this is a business that has been around for 100 and 
40 plus years. It's a business that was very well capitalized. So that puts it back into the 1880s or so? Yeah, 1870-something, I believe. Um, so even, you know, it's getting up probably close to its uh, 150th anniversary, if I remember correctly. But, you know, it's just one of those type of industries that energy, there's a need for energy in all different types of environments. And the one takeaway from this, you hear a story about a business owner in a good business in a good industry that's able to sell the business. Well, I don't know if the business had been as marketable if it weren't for just how well run it was. The fact that it owned all of its locations, the fact that it had zero leverage, consistent clientele, and had diversified itself to not just delivering the energy, but everything else that's involved with it, the maintenance of equipment, the, um, the servicing, the contractual work. And to me, that's where you know, businesses need to start to think is that, you know, what happens if it's COVID-20 or what happens if it's the next natural disaster? Um, some things we can control, some things we can't control. But as a business owner, the more ways that you can differentiate yourself and diversify your sources of income, the more likely it is that you can withstand these type of uh, occurrences that are outside of our control. You indicated the business has been around for multi-generations. I assume that the current owner purchased it from the original family that founded it or someone that had founded the business at, at a point in time. Did he have any children that were involved in the business at all? Surprisingly, with four children, you would think that statistically one of them had to have some sort of uh, desire to get into the business, but that just wasn't the case. So there wasn't a family succession plan. There, there wasn't a management buyout um, that was ever discussed. Great people, great leadership, but with the numbers that were being thrown around, there was no way that he was going to be able to get any sort of a group of individuals together that were going to even put a dent in a decent down payment. And it becomes the old analogy. It's a bird in the hand or two in the bush. I mean, sometimes if someone's willing to hand you a sizable amount of money in a blank check, then ultimately they, um, you got to take it because it's worth far more than what you otherwise could have received from holding on to a paper for 10 or 20 years. So in this type of situation, I think you made a good point earlier as you were describing the transaction that really we have a situation here while they were in a, quote, recession-proof business, even though they were in a good sector vertical. That's all fine and dandy, but if you don't have all of the other things that uh, make a business solid, and as you went through and listed off some of the criteria for that was diversification of revenue, reoccurring revenue through contractual work, a good, strong management team, maintenance program, and owning their own real estate and buildings, and all those other things that play into making it solid and very marketable when it comes time. So we have a situation here, we get hit blindsided by COVID, and yet the buyer came to the table and without question, without hesitation, moved to close because of the predictability of the business, the underlying underpinnings of the business, even though it was in a good sector, 
that probably would not have happened if all these other things hadn't been in place. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, it absolutely is. Everything was aligned, right? The business financials were very clean. The business owner spent the last couple of years of cleaning out any uh, personal items that happened to find their way into the business tax return uh, to help with uh, multiple expansion. The business had very little debt, if any. The business owned all of its properties free and clear. And, you know, I think when people are looking to buy a business, they're looking at financials, they're looking at, you know, client base, the nature of the business that you're in. But the two things that they're also looking at that I don't think get enough attention is they're looking at human capital and who runs that place. And then they're also looking at, you know, do you control where you're located? You know, do you own your building um, or are you subject to the you know terms of a lease that are pretty unfavorable? I'll give you one quick example. I remember a restaurant in the Central Hartford area, phenomenal restaurant, ideal location, and they had a lease. And the uh, property owners had continually just escalated that lease at the expiration every five years knowing that these people were so established there, they have no choice but to stay there. Um, you know, and again, restaurants versus oil delivery versus uh, you know, other types of businesses, the relevancy of owning your property is different. But the fact that this business had three separate locations and all of the properties were owned and could be transferred was a huge plus, huge plus. Huge plus. Yeah. Well, so I think the the big takeaway here as we wrap up discussing this transaction is really that you recession-proof or COVID-proof your business. You don't know what the next uncontrollable event is. We do know that there will be an uncontrollable event, whether it's another recession like we had in the Great Recession of 2008-9, or if it's COVID or a hurricane or whatever comes down the road. It's uncontrollable. You can't spend your time worrying about that. But what you can do is try to isolate yourself, inoculate yourself against those events as much as possible. And that's what you do have control over. Well, that was an interesting transaction, Matt. So why don't we pull the podcast here to a close and talk about one last transaction that worked out well for your client? Yeah. So Marvin, this is an interesting one. I mean, we've talked about some transactions that uh, didn't occur. We've talked about one that did, but in arrears, the ownership had some issues. Uh, We talked about the most recent one. And The last one I'll leave you with is a very large scale commercial roofing contractor. And um, this is, uh, I guess, uh, it starts off as a sad story. And I guess it kind of finishes off as being a pretty happy one for all the parties involved. But uh, in 2011, the business owner, the patriarch of the family at the early ripe age of 62 or 63, um, passed away unexpectedly and immediately. And the business owner leading up to his death, thankfully, had done a lot of planning where he had put the ownership of the business into a revocable trust. So upon his death, there were some very smart, 
trusted advisors that were brought in to kind of facilitate how we're going to then get this business in the hands of someone that can operate it. Now, the business owner had four children, uh, all of them in the business, and three daughters and a son. And it was very evident and clear that the only one that could really run this business was the son. Uh, And he was not the oldest, but he was the only one that really had the skill set, the experience with business management, the experience with managing staff and um, running jobs, estimating jobs, determining profitability of jobs, uh, because that's the role that he had served in. Well, the first thing that we really needed to figure out is mom is still around and mom has grown accustomed to a certain lifestyle and we've got to figure out a way for mom to continue that. So when we arrived at a value of the business um, and what that was going to produce in an installment sale over the course of the next 15 years, and that's how it was designed so that the business wasn't going to get um, suffocated by very large payments. The amount that mom, in essence, was going to get monthly was sufficient enough for her. The business could afford that. Um, But now the son's not getting something for nothing. But he is getting a well-established business that he's probably paying a little lesser than market value for. What about the three other siblings? Well, the three other siblings, we need to maintain their employment, which we did and have done till this day. Uh, nine years removed, almost. And we also want to put something in place because the siblings are not going to be entitled to any profits of the company. Let's create some sort of a deferred compensation plan where the business can, year in and year out, make a contribution into that plan as a way of giving back some of the profits of the business. So, um, and, and I'll stop after this statement and uh, allow you to ask any questions, Marvin. But we had a situation where dad's no longer here. Let's make sure mom is taken care of. We feel like we've done that. Um, and then let's try and continue this business operationally. And all while doing this, let's try and make sure that there's no dissension or discord between or disdain for that matter between the family. And um, thankfully, I can say that that all has been the case. Well, these things are not likely to happen if some real detailed planning had not taken place. That's too many balls to have in the air, especially when you have well five, six people involved, I guess, the, or five people, I guess, the mom and, and four kids, all of which have different ages and different objectives and goals and I guess mom really wasn't involved in the business. Did she have any business savvy and smarts? No. I mean, the only thing that mom really knew how to do, and she does it well, is she knew how to spend. She had no real concept for what the business produced, what the business was worth. All that she knew is that the business did enough to support her lifestyle. And again, in the absence of any real sophisticated planning, and the planning didn't need to be overly sophisticated. It could have been accomplished by well way of a one-way buy-sell between the father and the son. Um, but 
you know, at the time, putting it in the trust and letting trustees decide what to do was was probably even the better of the option. Um, uh, we had to figure out a way that mom was going to maintain her lifestyle. We wanted to make sure that the siblings whose livelihood is dependent on that business surviving uh, continue to have employment. We wanted to give them something for not getting something immediately, which is the brother getting the business ownership. And again, the risk of the business. I mean, getting a business and paying for a business and, and running a business, um, you know, people kind of forget about what's involved with that type of a business and the risk. Um, so that's why we wanted to set up some sort of a deferred compensation plan for them. But in the absence of the planning, mom steps in and becomes the new owner of that business. And based on the very little information I gave to you and uh, her propensity to spend, you have a good idea of where this business could have ended. Well, especially if there is the ability to pay out of the business, keeping the family employed and keeping mom happy and not having her involved in the business and trying to make business decisions. And I guess the business agreements were fairly clear that it was undisputed no questions asked type of situation of who was going to be in control and run the business. So there wasn't any debating and arm wrestling over that issue. That's absolutely the case. And and that's probably the greatest takeaway from this is that let's not leave everybody in limbo and let's not be subjective. Let's make it so that if something were to happen, the unexpected, that everybody knows where they stand. And all the family members knew and they knew the parties that were in turn going to come in and make sure that the business survived. And here we are nine years left. The business has grown considerably. The company um, has acquired multiple locations. They've extended their reach throughout the, the area that they're in in the country. All right. Well, let's wrap it up here, Matt. We appreciate you taking the time and sharing the stories and transactions with our audience here on the podcast. And I'm sure that the different people living to this podcast have similar types of issues and concerns and the takeaways are going to help them as they think through the process of positioning their own business once it gets time and ready for them to go through this transitional period and planning for those eventual exits. So Matt, if, if someone wanted to reach out and get a hold of you and maybe chat with you a little bit and find out a little bit more what you do since you are, quote, a wealth advisor, which is a little bit different, as I said, than a lot of our business intermediaries that visit us as guests on the show, uh, how would they do that? Yeah, thanks, Marvin. So my best contact information you can get from our website, which is www.ridgeline.f as in Frank, P as in Paul.com. I can be reached at Matt, M-A-T-T, at RidgelineFP.com. Um, you can follow me as well on Twitter, which uh, is at Matt Carbray, uh, M-A-T-T-C-A-R-B as in boy, R-A-Y-C-F-P. We do do a lot as a firm on local and national media. Uh, so sometimes you may see us out on, on Fox uh, Business or Fox News, uh, often some of the local stations in Connecticut. But um, yeah, we very much so focus a lot of our efforts on helping small, closely held business owners understand their business, monetize their business, 
and do whatever they can in preparation for a business exit. All right, Matt, thanks for joining us here today. Until next time, when we share more business exit stories with you, this is Marvin Storm saying goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning. In order to help entrepreneurs get their business positioned to sell, I have been compiling the good, the bad, and the ugly, sometimes really ugly stories that are shared here on the podcast and together with the decades of my experience in growing and exiting businesses into a book I'm going to call Pack Your Parachute, The Strategies for a Successful and Profitable Business Exit. I would like to give you a pre-publication offer here to have you get a copy of this book simply by going to www.businessexitstories.com forward slash book. If you register, I will get you a discount code for 90% off. Again, that is www.businessexitstories.com forward slash book.